We are continuing our study of 2 Timothy this morning. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And uh, the, one of the primary themes of our passage this morning is the idea of legacy and uh, what kind of legacy we want to leave as believers in Christ. And as I was thinking about the concept of legacy this week, I was remembering that a few years ago, my dad spent some time researching our family tree and our ancestry and who are the people who came before us in our family. What were they like? And occasionally he would send articles with stories about our family or interesting uh, information and occasionally photographs of men or women in our family who came before. And one picture that grabbed my attention that he sent some time ago uh, was this one. This man is named George Washington Morton. Uh, He is my great, great grandfather. This picture was probably taken sometime in the 1880s. Uh, I apologize. It's a little grainy. It's very old. Uh, And so there was not a great way to make this sharper. But I look at that picture and I wonder what part of him lives in me. Right? What are the traits and the characteristics that George Washington Morton had that live in me? Uh, he appears from this photo to be tall, right? so I didn't get that one. He is standing next to a small windmill, a small wooden windmill. That's because he was a windmill salesperson uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, I have never thought about windmills much other than when I drive past them. I did not inherit his love for windmills. Uh, He has a fantastic beard. I don't know if you can tell that from where you're sitting. Turns out I can grow a pretty good beard. So I did inherit that from him. Uh, But as I look at that, and maybe you've seen old photos like this of old family members of yours and thought, what part of that person lives in me? Well, let's turn the question around now and ask this. When you are gone, 100 130 years from now, and your great-great-grandchildren pull up a photograph of you, what traits will you have passed down to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and so on? Certainly physical traits, but what values do you have? What principles do you adhere to that are central to your life that you'd say, I want my great-grandkids to keep that principle foremost in their lives. What are those things? If they were to look at a photo like that, most of us are unlikely to be remembered much at all, right? But we can still have an impact because often the values that we transmit to our kids and grandkids will be transmitted to their kids and grandkids long after we're gone. Now, some of you see a photo like that and you think about that question and you say, well, I don't have any kids, or grandkids, and I may never have kids or grandkids, right? That's okay. As we talk about the subject this morning, it will become clear that in order to leave a legacy, you don't have to have physical descendants. In fact, in the passage we are looking at this morning, Paul doesn't emphasize physical descendants, but instead he will talk to Timothy about what it looks like as a believer in Jesus Christ to leave a legacy of faith to take what you know about Jesus Christ and hand it on to others who are a little bit behind you in their walk with the Lord, a little bit younger. And then they take the faith and they hand it on and they hand it on 
and they hand it on. As we've talked about in 2 Timothy, what was central to Paul's life was the gospel itself. We talked about that last week, that it, according to Paul, is the greatest treasure that you could guard, that you could keep, that you could invest your life in. And here in chapter 2, he's going to say, Timothy, take that treasure, the gospel itself, and hand it on to faithful men who will hand it on to faithful men. There are four generations of Christians in this passage. There's Paul, there's Timothy, there's the people Timothy hands the faith toward, and there are those that they hand the faith to. Because Paul was deeply concerned about what was going to happen once he left the scene. Remember, he was writing this book from prison. It wasn't long after this that he was martyred for his faith. And Paul is concerned, what's going to happen when I'm gone? How will the faith continue? But not only when he is gone, he wonders what's going to happen when Timothy is gone. And when Timothy's spiritual children are gone. And so the message of 2 Timothy becomes that we are to make disciples. We are to hand the faith to faithful men and women who will hand the faith to faithful men and women. And so on and so on until Jesus comes back. So that the younger men and women in the faith that we see around us, those men and women are the future of the body of Christ. That is the task of discipleship. And what Paul talks about in this passage is simply this, making disciples is a mission worthy of all our attention and all our energy. In other words, he will say to Timothy, Timothy, invest your life in this task and don't get sidetracked from what God has called you to do. We'll talk about this more as we go throughout the passage, but this is the great commission that Jesus gave to the disciples. He says, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. And the process of making disciples is how the gospel continues from generation to generation. And as we walk through this passage, I want each of us in the room to be thinking about this question. Who are you investing in? Who are the men and women coming behind you who will pick up the faith of Jesus Christ because you invested in them and carry it to the next generation after them? Who are they? If the answer is nobody, then we all have some work to do because all of us are called to make disciples. It is a consistent call that we see throughout the Scriptures. Let's look at how Paul lays this task out for Timothy this morning. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I love how Paul begins again by calling Timothy his son. That's how he began the letter. And remember when we talked about that, of course, Timothy is not Paul's physical son. But Timothy probably heard the gospel first from Paul and was discipled, trained, mentored by Paul. And here in chapter 2, again, he says, Timothy, you are my son in the faith. I want you to remember what I did for you. I took the faith I have in Jesus Christ, and I handed it on to you. And he says, Timothy, I want you to do that, but I want you to do that in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the first principle we see in the passage is this, that you draw your strength for the task of discipleship, first and foremost, from Jesus. He'll say here in verse 1, again, you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding 
in everything. In other words, the understanding you need, the strength you need, the power you need to make disciples comes first and foremost from Jesus. You are rooted in your belief in Jesus Christ. Hopefully there has been a moment in time in your life when you trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of your sin and eternal life. And from that relationship with Jesus Christ, then you hand on the gospel to others. He says, the strength that you need comes from the grace given to you by God through Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace is simply that God has bestowed on you unmerited love and favor. That God, while you and I were still sinners, gave Jesus Christ who died in our place. He took the punishment we deserve. He rose again and he promises eternal life to all who will believe in him. That is the foundation of the process of discipleship because we trust in Jesus Christ. And then we hand that on to others as we tell them about who Jesus is. Right, Paul will also say to Timothy uh, that his gifts are of grace. That is, the ability Timothy has to teach, to lead, to evangelize, all those things are gifts of grace. Timothy doesn't deserve them. None of us deserve them. None of us make disciples in our own strength. This reminds me of a passage we talked about earlier this semester from John chapter 15, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, everything you need for the task of discipleship comes from the power of God's spirit dwelling within you because you are rooted in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That ought to be an encouragement for every person in the room who feels like we all do. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough Bible verses. I'm not charismatic enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not whatever enough in order to have an impact on other people. And Paul will say, uh, you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as Jesus said, you can do nothing apart from me. I don't know if you have ever been in a situation where you felt helpless apart from the intervention of somebody else. One that comes to mind in my life was about 10 years ago, Shannon and I went to France to meet one of our mission trip teams as they were headed back toward the United States. And our task in France was to sort of give them a debriefing and prepare them to come back and think about what had happened on their trip and what the Lord wanted them to do. Uh, We also did some sightseeing with them while we were there, because as long as you are in Paris, you might as well, right? But here was the challenge. I speak zero French. I mean, none. My wife speaks French pretty well, enough to get along. And what I found was that there were certain scenarios that I could not function if she was not with me. Uh, One of those situations was with the desk clerk at our hotel. It wasn't just that I couldn't communicate with him. It was that he would not acknowledge my presence if she was not there. I would stand at the counter and I would watch him take care of other French-speaking individuals and I'd go, excuse me, can I ask you a question? And he would look at me out of the corner of his eye and move on as if I was not even present. But what I noticed was as soon as Shannon joined me and began to address him in French, all of a sudden we existed. And she could ask the question for me that I could not ask. I could not function. Unless she was present, she provided something critical. 
I need it. What Paul says is, Timothy, the task of discipleship has to be rooted in the power of God because you can't do anything apart from him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said this to his readers, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, so that no man may boast before God. In a very uh, modern sense, if we were to paraphrase this, Paul is saying, look, none of you are the sharpest tools in the shed. It's not a compliment. You're not that smart. You're not that wise. You're not that strong. In worldly terms, you do not have the social clout and ability to have an impact. But he says, God has chosen you because you're weak. Because you don't have what's necessary. Because God will display the greatness of Jesus Christ through weak vessels. Vessels who say, I'm not smart enough. I'm not knowledgeable enough. I'm not a good enough speaker like Moses said to God. And God will say, that's why I called you. Because what I want is that people are overwhelmed, not with your ability, but with the grace of God. That he would use weak and sinful people like you and me. And so Paul will say, you draw your strength for this task from Jesus. We could talk all morning long about six ways to evangelize better, four ways to teach better, and we could give all kinds of techniques for sharing the gospel and how to get into that conversation. And all of that might be helpful, but in the final analysis, unless the Spirit of God moves through His people, nothing happens, which is why Paul will say, you begin by rooting yourself in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that means that every day you ask Him for the power from His Spirit, to be faithful today to make disciples. I had a professor in seminary who used to say, you cannot impart what you do not possess. Your power for discipleship comes from your own relationship with Jesus Christ as you seek to know the word of God and seek to know him. And then Paul will go on and say, you draw your strength from Jesus and then you invest your life in making disciples. Look at verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As we mentioned, there are four generations in this passage. As Paul passes the good news to Timothy and Timothy passes it to faithful men who pass it to faithful men. And Paul says that's the task of discipleship. This is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. In other words, you take what is most central to your life and you make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is simply a learner or a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, everything I taught you, you teach someone else. Everything you know about me, you teach someone else. Everything I've done, you go teach someone else. And when we think about that, that sounds a bit intimidating, right? But the reality is that most of us already are making disciples when it comes to things that are important. Uh, Yesterday, I was watching the game on TV, and I'll admit that right around halftime, I decided they had the game pretty well under control, And uh, they didn't need me as much, so I was watching it, but I was also surfing Facebook at the same time. 
And as I was surfing Facebook, I noticed that some of you in this room, you posted pictures of yourself with your family at the game, right? And here's what I observed, that many of you are already training and discipling even your infants to be Aggies, right? They are in maroon onesies. Uh, They are eating maroon applesauce. All right, some of you, they know a few sign language words, like they, they know please or more or thank you and gigum, right? That's the four that you've taught them because it's that important to you to hand on something that's valuable in your life because you say this, my son, is where life is found, right? So you want them to know. Now, I happen to uh, find Tex-Mex something important to my life, right? It's something that I care about. And so uh, we eat Tex-Mex as a family. And I talk to my kids about where the best tacos are and how to make the best tacos and all of those things. And uh, earlier this week, I ran across a trend that is going around certain parts of the country where people are uh, doing this with tacos, right? And I saw it and I thought, I I had the same reaction you did. I could hardly look at this picture, and I thought, no, that should never, ever, ever happen. Hey, this is ever, yes. This is mostly happening in the Northeast, like New York City, which doesn't surprise any of us, right? Came from a TV show. Now, what will I tell my kids about this? No, this is wrong. This is Tex-Mex heresy, right? And I don't want my kids and grandkids to live in a world where this is ever considered okay. okay? So I will tell them, here's what belongs in a taco, and here's what doesn't belong in a taco because it matters to me, right? That's discipleship. You say, you know what? I know and love Jesus Christ, and that is central to my life, and I want you to know it as well. So we hand down what has been given to us. Uh, Many of us in this room, perhaps, struggle with complaining about the generations that are coming after us, right? Those crazy millennials, they're selfish, entitled, looking at their phones all the time. All of these terrible things. Let me exhort you, do not complain about the habits of the younger generations unless you are ready and willing to step in and invest in their lives to train them about Jesus Christ. Because those young men and women are the future of God's people. The generation that I am from Uh, We're called Generation X, right? And we were similarly labeled disengaged, lazy, entitled. Uh, They didn't even give us a real name. It's like the generation ahead of us said, uh, they saw us coming and they just said, Aunt X, right? We don't even want you to have a name. And yet, there were men and women in my life who chose to invest and teach me about Jesus. Certainly my parents But I was remembering one story as well from my college years. I applied one summer to work at a local engineering firm that was run by a professor at A&M who was an engineering professor who has long since retired and moved on. And I had to sit down and do an interview with this man. And in the course of the interview, of course, he asked me about myself, my family, what I was interested in. But at one point he said, I want you to tell me what your GPA is. And at the time, I was, I don't know, a 3-2, something like that. And then he asked the question I was afraid he was going to ask, which is, what was your GPA last semester? And I kind of mumbled, uh, it was a 2.5, right? because I had gotten involved in some other things besides school, and I had neglected my grades. And I'll never forget, he looked at me, and he said, what was your SAT score? 
And I told him, and my SAT score was pretty good. And he said, young man, there's no reason that somebody with your ability and intelligence ought to be getting a 2-5 or even hovering around a 3-2. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you believe that Colossians 3 is right, that you ought to do your work heartily as unto the Lord, and that the work you do reflects the character of God, then there's no reason you ought to be lazy with your studies. And then you know what he did? He hired me and continued to invest in my life. And I walked away from that conversation feeling about as tall as a grasshopper. He could have been a little nicer, probably. But I never forgot the conversation. And it was the beginning of developing in me a conviction that the work that I do reflects on Jesus Christ because that man took the time not to go away and complain to his fellow professors about that lazy kid, but to encourage and exhort me to walk with Christ better. That is discipleship. And I promise you, any person in this room is capable of that. Whether it is at your place of work that you see a young man or a woman who needs guidance, you say, let me take you to lunch and hear your story and encourage you. For some of you, it's in your home. You say, I don't have any time for discipleship because I'm trying to keep little people alive. That is discipleship. As you invest in them and train them about Jesus. As you exercise the patience of Christ himself when they mark on the carpet. And show them the love of Jesus Christ. In one of the drawers of my desk, I keep a file that is called an encouragement file, and it is filled with cards and emails and notes that people have sent me over the years to talk about the ministry of Grace Bible Church or how they have been impacted by my life or my family's life. And I don't keep it to puff myself up. Instead, I keep it so that at those moments where I wonder, is God working? I can look and see, here is what God has done in this ministry and in people's lives. And This past week, I pulled it out and I began to read some of those cards and notes. And here's what struck me was of all the notes people had written over the years, I could not find one that referenced any particular sermon that I preached. Instead, the comments and the notes were almost uniformly like this. Thank you for allowing me to see how you raise your kids. Thank you for allowing me to get a glimpse into your relationship with your wife. Thank you for sitting down with me at a critical moment and talking to me about my future in ministry or in my career because it helped arrange the trajectory of my life. And I read it and I thought, anybody in this room can do that. It doesn't take any special seminary training to see somebody who needs some guidance. Maybe at your office, maybe in this room, maybe there's somebody you have seen walking into this room over and over and over again. And this week is the time for you to say, let me take you to lunch and encourage you. You don't have to be Yoda to their Luke Skywalker. It doesn't have to be this big formal issue. But to say, I will invest in the lives of the next generation. Paul says that task is worth giving your life to because those men and women coming behind you are the future 
of the people of God. And he'll go on to say, you invest your life in disciple-making and then do not get sidetracked. Make this task the center of how you spend your time and energy. Look at verses 3 through 6. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Essentially, Paul is saying, look, you make discipleship, you make this task, Timothy, a a task that engages all of your mind, all of your energy, until the day you die or until Jesus comes back. Look at this task and don't deviate from it. One of my favorite moments when I have the opportunity to perform a wedding is, of course, when the bride comes down the aisle and everybody's attention is on the bride, right? Everybody turns and looks at the bride. And one of my favorite things to do from my vantage point up in front is to sneak a look at the groom. Because the groom's face always tells a story that he is always 100% focused on his bride. He doesn't turn his eyes to the left or right. It would be an inopportune time for me to try to say, hey, can I ask you a question about what's coming next? You might get hit. Because all that matters to him at that moment is seeing her come in. That is single-minded focus. And Paul says, as we engage in the task of discipleship, here's the thing. Don't make secondary matters of primary importance. And he uses three analogies One is the soldier. In ancient Rome, a soldier would often make a 20-year commitment. They would enlist for 20 years. And during that 20 years, all they could do was function as a soldier, train as a soldier, fight as a soldier. They could not get married. They could not buy property. They didn't get entangled, as Paul says, in the affairs of everyday life because their whole purpose in life was to defend Rome as a soldier. And he says, Timothy, that ought to be you as you pursue the task of discipleship. See, here's the thing. All of us have secondary issues that we have to attend to. We have to pay the bills. We have to mow the lawn. We have to clean the house. We've got to make sure we got clothes. We have to make sure there is food. There are all of these issues that we think about on a daily basis, and we've got to do them. But I think what Paul would say is don't allow those issues to become the center of our life. We don't want to get to the end of our lives and say, hallelujah, the kitchen is clean. But instead, like Paul, as he's approaching the end of his life, to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Notice he comes back in part to these same illustrations. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You remain single-minded. He uses also the illustration of an athlete. Right? And he says an athlete has to compete by the rules in order to win. Uh, you can't cheat and still win. If you are running a race and you step into the lane next to you, you are disqualified. You've got to compete by the rules. If you get caught cheating, you will not win. 
And I believe he uses this illustration in part to communicate to us that the Christian race also has rules. Right, if we're going to have an impact when it comes to disciple making, there are rules by which we must abide. So as you look at the scripture, you see rules about sexual behavior. You see rules about behavior with money. You see rules about how we treat others. There are rules. And often we look at those rules and we say, why are these rules in place, even for those of us who know Jesus Christ? And the reason is because we are called to reflect the character of God who is perfectly pure and holy and loyal and truthful and righteous. And as we reflect his character, that provides the credibility and ability to speak about the gospel. And so Paul says, you compete according to the rules. You stay within the lines. Not just for the sake of being good, but for the sake of making disciples. Then he says, the hardworking farmer is the first to receive his share of the crops. That there is diligence and labor involved in the task. Tommy Nelson in his Discussion of this text says there are no lazy, successful farmers. There are lazy, dead farmers. The point is this, that in order to reap the harvest, we remain disciplined and focused. When was the last time you were able to really eliminate distraction from your day and spend undistracted time in God's Word or undistracted time talking to another person about the things of God. Distractions are everywhere, right? They fill our lives. Even as we're trying to engage with others or study, we hear the little noises from our phone over and over and over again, and we believe we must attend to them. Even as I was studying for this passage this week about being undistracted, my family was texting me about the election. And what do I do? I start to engage. I text back. I text back again. And then I'm halfway reading this passage talking about single-mindedness. And I said, hey, I think I need to check out of this conversation for a few minutes. But we're all in that boat. And it's not just social media, is it? Although that's a part of it. I was uh, looking this week at some of the things Facebook felt should be important to our lives Here are a few of them. Actor Channing Tatum was excited to meet Simone Biles. Uh, Sylvester Stallone is not dead, although some people said he was. Troy Aikman is upset that Fox Sports hired Skip Bayless. Uh, The iPhone 7 is coming out, and we cannot afford it. Uh, A football player decided to protest the national anthem. Some people are for him, some people are against him. Uh, Tim Tebow might actually try out to play baseball for the Braves. Right? Now, none of this stuff is evil in and of itself. None of it is stuff that you're, you're bad or wrong for reading or thinking about. But the problem becomes when that stuff becomes the center of what we fret about, talk about, worry about, focus on. So that we leave aside single-minded devotion on the task of making disciples. We are called to recognize that from our work to our family to the way we engage our neighbors to the way we engage in church, disciple-making is at the center. It's not just the computer that distracts us. Often it can be our career or the task of paying the bills or, again, keeping the kids alive, all which are things we have to do. 
all of which are things that can point to the glory of God and the truth of the gospel, but those are not of primary importance because Jesus Christ is of primary importance. And so Paul will say, you with undistracted devotion, Timothy, engage in the task of discipleship. So making disciples is a task that is worth all our attention and energy. I want to make it clear, there are, there are some of you in the room that you think, I don't even know uh, where to begin with this, and I, I'm not a person that's going to have some giant ministry. Well, that's not even Paul's intention. Everybody in this room, wherever you are, wherever you serve, has an opportunity to engage in disciple-making. You say, I'm really busy with my job, with my career, what I would challenge you to do is think about who is it in the workplace who is looking for guidance. I meant to share something a few moments ago that I want to come back to as we close. I found an article some time ago about the top five things that millennials want from their employers. This is from just a few years ago. Number one, millennials say, I want someone to help me navigate my career path. Number two, I want someone who will give me straight feedback. Number three, I want someone who will mentor and coach me. Number four, I want someone who will sponsor me for a formal development program. Number five, I want someone who will accept a flexible schedule. Now, what do we do? Often we ignore the first four and we complain about number five, don't we? But these are men and women crying out for mentorship and leadership. And so you say, I don't have a lot of time, but in my place of work, I can see a young man or woman who needs guidance about his future. And I pray for an opportunity to talk about the future they can have with Jesus Christ. You say, you know what? I'm at home all week long with my kids. And we've all heard the expression, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You are investing in the next generation of believers in Jesus Christ, will you do it faithfully, even when it's hard, even when it seems small? Because I promise you it's not small. Maybe you've walked into this room, as I mentioned, and you see young men and women. You recognize that uh, the seat you sat in last week, they came in with a big group and took your chair. Will you reach out? And maybe this week you say, you know what, I want to take you to lunch and just talk about your life. If it's a college student, offer to pay, and I promise it will be the beginning of a fruitful relationship. (laughs) They'll show up. Everybody in this room can be engaged in the task of disciple-making with our energy, with our time, and with whatever resources that God has given. Because the men and women coming behind you and me are the ones who will take the message and hand it to the next generation. Very quickly, I want each person in this room to lock in their minds one person. One person that you think, I I think that person might respect me. I think that person might listen to what I say. I think that person might like me. And I think that person might need some encouragement and guidance. Lock one person like that into your mind. And then pray for them 
as we go from here. And then engage with that person this week. It doesn't have to be a big moment. But just start a friendship where you can engage in this task of disciple-making and allow them to see the love you have for Jesus Christ and pass that on to the next generation. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for this time. I know many of us in this room can think of people who invested in our lives when we were immature, when we were struggling, when we needed guidance. And so I pray that you would empower us through your spirit to be those men and women for others. For the people that came to our minds just now, I pray we would be faithful. I pray we would not be afraid or timid, but that we would step forward to fulfill the task of disciple-making. I pray, Father, that we would seek simply to trust you and to remain focused as we follow and obey the Great Commission. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.